I want to change the world Cause they woke How can you get there? Nani wants the rest of me Emayuki to Ikao no kakerera Date change my mind Junatsu tasasazu ni Takanaru miwai and what a wonderland it is, the Rumic world. A strange place full of all sorts of creatures, of all shapes and sizes, full of wacky shenanigans and rom-com hijinks, colorful characters in unique Japanese settings. A place created from the mind of Rumiko Takahashi, inhabited by a flurry of her greatest creations. Lum from Yurisayatsura, the gender-bending martial artist Rama Sautomi from Rama One Half, and, of course, the subject of today's podcast, everyone's favorite dog-haired half-demon, Inuyasha. Greetings, my friends. I am Lum Ramayasha, the one, the only Takahashi Tai, and today... We are going to cover a retrospective of Inuyasha Studi's last 20 years, explore its legacy, answer some questions, and at the very end, count down our favorite moments from the series in celebration of 20 years of Inuyasha. Let me introduce with you my special guest, here to join me on today's journey through the world of Inuyasha, V-Lord GTZ. How are you doing, V-Lord? Uh, pretty good. That was, that was a pretty good dramatic monologue you had there, Sid. Yeah, I don't even know if I uh, got the tune of the second verse of that song quite correct. I mean, it did completely shatter my eardrums, <laughs> so... I, I guess that's somewhat of a success? Which song would you have rather me done? Um, you cannot dream. You cannot dream. Oh, why? I'm not even singing the lyrics. I've a monster. I'm not even singing the lyrics. I'm just humming the tune. Not even humming. I'm just beep beeping the tune. Doing some on Yeah. Oh. But. I mean, we're not here to talk about the anime, though. We're here to talk about the manga. Well, we're a little bit of both, I guess. We're going to cover. The history of Inuyasha as a series, from its inception, how it spread to North America, to all the way to its conclusion. A full-on retrospective of the series, why and how it was created, and the legacy it's left. So let's start at the very beginning, with the woman of the hour herself, Rumiko Takahashi. Lover or hater, I love her. She is definitely one of the most successful manga creators out there, and she had made quite a name for herself in the early 80s and 90s with her long-running and very successful rom-coms, Yurisayatsura, Maison Ikoku, and Ranma One Half. The latter was extremely popular, 
To date, it is her most successful manga series, and when it ended in Shonen Sunday, it was greatly missed. There is literally a Rama one-half memorial section in Shonen Sunday that started the week after the last chapter was published and continued for several months afterwards. I mean, at least they didn't make a gravestone like they did for Ishida no Joe. <laughs> yes, at least they didn't make a grave for the series. There weren't people who went out in the streets and cried for the debt of Rama one half. But yes. it was sheer lies, Rama. <laughs> but it was surely missed, and of course, with her most successful series to date completed, people were looking forward to another Rumiko Takahashi work. And she had planned her next work to debut in the fall of 1996. After Rama 1.5, Takahashi took a little bit of a vacation. She went to Mexico for a 10-day vacation, going to the Yucatan Peninsula, visiting the ruins and pyramids. Though not, not explicitly made a connection of between this and... The inspiration for starting in Iyasha, it is interesting. Perhaps visiting this historical setting gave her an idea to make historical fantasy of her own. But in Takahashi's own words, after writing mainly rom-coms for most of her career, she wanted to draw a story-oriented manga. And she liked the idea of historical piece. She wanted something she could easily draw, but she also wanted... A little bit of a challenge. She wanted to tell a more serious story, a less comedic story, and she wanted to do it with the same kind of sensibilities she always had, her bizarre worldview. But she didn't want to make a love comedy. She wanted to have a crazy historical setting full of monsters, a swashbuckling adventure. And that thought excited her. The challenge, the difference of that idea excited her. And I'm sure that editors were thrilled at the idea one of their most successful authors going on and following the path to success, a shonen battle manga. Oh yes, the wonderful world of battle shonen. I mean, that's the career path that most editors try to steer their creators towards, it seems. Back on the subject of Inuyasha. She wanted to create a series where she had a really good time She'd enjoy herself, but she wanted to do something new. She wanted to do something with more emotional scenes. And she wanted to focus more on male characters as opposed to her female characters, who in her previous works, she had given more attention. And that were the elements that basically jolted her initial inspiration to create Inuyasha. But why the setting of the Sengoku-era Japan? Well, Takahashi claims that she felt it would be easier to do a ghost story in that time period. She didn't really think that deeply about it. And if you know Takahashi, just her perspective as a creator, she doesn't really think too hard about uh, her storytelling. She draws in the moment. She's a very much whatever I feel like drawing this week kind of artist. And when she comes up with her ideas... It's very much the same way. Sudden inspiration, fleeting whim. Whatever she wants to draw, she draws it. And whatever she idea she thinks up, she goes with it. So she thought of telling a story in the Sengoku era. And she thought that would make a good setting because there was a lot of war during that time. A lot of people died during that time. And 
it would make a lot of sense to set a story full of demons and monsters in that crueler wartime era. She didn't do too much research on that time period for Inuyasha. Just focused on some things that, you know, normal Japanese people would know about that era. Evoking imagery of samurai wearing armor, riding horses, some castles, some popular, like, landmarks, and some imagery from the time period. Get the sense that it was set in Sengoku era. But not married to the setting and not drawing too heavily to the timeline or historical accuracy. Many designs of monsters in Inuyasha were inspired from Japanese folktale monsters, as is a popular subject that Takahashi draws on in all her works, from Yurisigatsu to Rana One Half to Rene. But uh, many of them were also original creatures, and she had a lot of fun coming up with her own monster designs. Inuyasha was going to be a more creatively liberating series for her, a series where she could tell a more serialized, serious story, different from anything she had ever done, and she had no limitations with what she could do with it. So that's why Takahashi wanted to write Inuyasha. That's why she wanted to create Inuyasha. So, Inuyasha uh, debuted on Weekly Shonen Shande in the 50th issue of 1996, which came out on November 13th, 1996. Now, I said that Inuyasha was going to be a creatively liberating series for Takahashi, but it's not like she had the story completely planned out. Uh, but the premise for the series, uh, collecting the shards of the Shikon Jewel, she decided on that premise because she thought the idea of collecting items and companions was basically the basis of storytelling, and that is basically the basis of shonen manga. You can think of Dragon Balls through One Piece. Really, it's about the hero going through his journey and collecting enemies and whatever items or uh, tools he needs to achieve his dream. And so I think she hit on something very true there. And at the beginning, she was going to just follow this basic structure, basically a loose structure for plotting out the story and basically allowing her to tell a Monster of the Week kind of story, draw something new every week, without with, with the sense that there was a general story progression, but without being married to a very time-sensitive, very definite plot structure or, like, end goal in mind. When it came to character relationships and the characters themselves, she didn't really have a definite idea of how she wanted the characters to turn out or the relationships between them to turn out. Uh, she didn't have any premeditated conclusions, so to speak. She came up with the idea for basically all her characters from basically the process of she kind of had run out of normal names for her characters at this point. So she kind of started by thinking up like names you don't ordinarily hear. And from that came up with the idea of the title character Inuyasha himself, which his name is basically comes from the fact that he's a dog uh, which in Japanese is called Inu, and a forest spirit in Japanese Yasha 
combined into Inuyasha. And interestingly enough, from the very beginning, Takahashi had Kape Yamaguchi's voice in mind for the character. Probably because of how well he had done as Ranma Sartomi in the Ranma One Half anime. From the very beginning, <laughs> she thought Kape would be a perfect fit for Inuyasha. So when the time came for the series to be animated, she directly requested Kape be Inuyasha. I will always say Kape Yamaguchi, no one else. <laughs> she had a, spent a longer time thinking about Kagome. She wrote down a mo- many different names that came to her mind, and she decided on Kagome because the name sounded cute, and she liked names that ended with May. No real reason, really. Just like names that ended with May. And from that came Kagome. When it came time to create Kikyo, she was thinking about flower imagery and flower symbolism. And she just happened to see a balloon flower on TV one day. And in Japanese, the balloon flower is called a Kikyo. And the meaning of the word Kikyo is unchanging love. And it just all clicked. And that's how the character and concept of Kikyo came to life. And then finally came Naraku. Now Naraku she didn't introduce into the story for about a year. And she hadn't even come up with him uh, at the beginning of the series serialization. But Naraku, the name of the character means hell. And the idea of the character is that he's just the epitome of evil. He wants destruction. He wants control. He wants everybody dead. And that's basically the idea behind Naraku as a character. But Takahashi didn't have a whole lot of the story planned out. She doesn't really like to force her characters to go in a preconceived direction. She just kind of goes with the flow and goes where the story takes her and where the characters naturally go in mind. But with that said, she didn't have many, actually, of the characters in mind from the beginning. Not Moroku, not Sango, not Shippo, not even Sashomaru. At the beginning, it was really just the Central Street, Inuyasha, Kagome, and Kikyo. And then as she went along, uh, she came up with these characters. Because, in her words... When you draw a long-running manga, inevitably, the number of characters will grow and grow. She did have a sense from the beginning she wanted to introduce more antagonists and more uh, allies for Inuyasha and Kagome. But she hadn't defined the ideas behind Moroku or Sango or Kohako or any of those guys yet. And that makes a lot of sense when you consider that Moroku doesn't first appear until about a year into the serialization, and Sango doesn't appear until about two years into the serialization. Basically, the Gang of Four doesn't get together until almost a hundred chapters in, over nine volumes in, over two years in, which is crazy to think about when we consider Inuyasha in retrospect, but it's speaks to the style of storytelling Takashi approached with Inuyasha at the start. It very was much this monster of the week kind of loose plot that was really just based around the simple idea of collecting the jewel shards and using that as a vehicle to tell all sorts of weird monster stories. And 
I think you can draw a lot of comparisons between the early Inuyasha and Mermaid Saga structurally. It's very much just, it's using a basic concept to explore various ideas and explore different types of folk tales and like different horror scenarios. And Takahashi's favorite genre is actually horror. And we see a lot of early horror elements in Inuyasha with the spider woman with some of the imagery in the series some of the so how the more disturbing imagery and I definitely think that early Inuyasha is kind of the most inspired part of Inuyasha I don't mean that to dismiss the rest of Inuyasha because I think there's a lot of creativity in the entire series but I think early Inuyasha is where Takahashi was really having the most fun. She was really just drawing whatever she wanted. She wasn't really concerned about where the story was going. And she was doing these really cool monster horror action stories. And I think that it was kind of a natural progression from Mermaid Saga. And I think that in many respects Inuyasha could have just been like it was in the first year of civilization. No Naraku, none of this overarching like plot stuff. It could have just been maybe a shorter like collection of these short stories as Inuyasha and Kogome traveled the world hunting for the Shikan Jewel. That could have been interesting, but it was clear that whether Takashi herself decided this or an editor decided this, that she needed to introduce a villain. And she needs to introduce more supporting characters. So here into the serialization, we get Moroku. And with Moroku, we get Naraku. And from there, the story becomes how we know it today. But of course, throughout that entire process, Takashi had never figured out her endgame for the series. In fact, to even towards the end of the series, uh, Takahashi hadn't even decided on what she wanted the ending to really be. She hadn't decided what she wanted to do with Kagome. She hadn't decided how she wanted to resolve the relationship between Kagome and Inuyasha, their fate. And basically came down to the last minute where she just figured it out and what she wanted to do. And she figured out that this idea of separation was was like a constant fear between Inuyasha and Kagome throughout the series and she decided to use that thematic concept as the hook for the ending of the series and create a satisfying happy ending for Inuyasha Kagome. So that's basically the general history of the Takashi's writing process on Inuyasha and of course there's more to discuss in that in how Seshomaru overtook the series at a certain point, basically becoming the series as Ryonosuke. Much like Ryonosuke and Yurusayatsura, Seshomaru became a character that basically became the deuteragonist of the series after a certain point, and Takahashi spent a lot more time on him than it felt like he was the main character at certain points in the series. I mean, let's face it, who prefers Inuyasha <laughs> to Seshomaru? <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, let's yeah, be real. I, I certainly am very happy that it ended up like that. Sashomaru is one of the best, most fascinating characters Takashi's ever created, and one of my favorite characters of all time. Really, his character arc is absolutely fantastic, and he probably has the best 
character arc for, I've seen when it comes to this anti-hero kind of character turning to the side of good from originally being a villain. And I've, there's many great examples of that, but Sashemaru to me is my absolute favorite because of how well done and how natural that journey with him is. I absolutely love it. Uh, and it's interesting with the way Takahashi approaches her characters. She loves all her characters about equally. And she, even with her villains, she never writes the villain she believes is truly evil. She can't write a character that she truly hates. So when she writes her villains, she thinks a lot about why they're evil and what their backgrounds and motivations are. And I think that creates some very interesting antagonists throughout the series. And people complain about Naraku and Inuyasha for being this, like, chess mastery kind of villain. I would like to point out... Those people are wrong. I mean, I would like to point out that Naraku has a losing streak on par with a Saturday morning cartoon villain for the first half of the series. Yeah. And only really become only really starts having any successes at all after the Band of Seven arc. And even then, they're only half successes. Yeah, once he gets like close to actually having a complete Shikon jewel, that's when he actually starts being like formidable, like... There are so many times, like, early in the series where he's just, like, near death. Sango almost kills him. Moroko yeah. almost I mean, kills him. I mean, that's one of the things I really like about Naraku is that the conflict between Inuyasha and Naraku in the first half of the series is like a constant back and forth of one's upsmanship. Like, Naraku is not this all-powerful, all-knowing creature. He is really actually quite weak and quite vulnerable. So he constantly needs to do something underhanded and needs to lurk in the shadows and try and compete against Inuyasha through any means at his disposal, whether it be trickery, manipulating others, or finding ways to make himself stronger. And Inuyasha, the same way, has to keep finding ways to outwit and outmaneuver Naraku's schemes and get closer to him and find him. I really love that game of cat and mouse they play and that game of one-upsmanship they play. And I think it's a really interesting dynamic. And I can understand why some people were frustrated with how Naraku would constantly use puppets or whatever to escape scenes and how... Maybe he was a little overplayed at certain points. Maybe he could have been lurking in the shadows a little more and not revealed himself to Inuyasha and gang as frequently. But I still really love just how Naraku and Inuyasha, the dynamic between those forces, collide and clash throughout the course of the series. And how they are both constantly competing with each other and, tr and on an equal playing field pretty much. Right up until Naraku absorbs Moriomaru and gets most of the Shikan Jewel. And afterwards, then he's pretty much in control from there. So we went over basically Takashi's top process with the series. And then, of course, there's more to say about Inuyasha as it came to North America. Uh, when it began, actually, Inuyasha was highly anticipated as Rumiko Takahashi was a very popular name in the early 90s. Round Run 1 Half was very huge. It was one of the biggest titles in anime manga fandom in the early 90s. So Inuyasha was highly anticipated, and Viz uh, jumped 
right on that anticipation, and they started releasing monthly floppies of Inuyasha chapters from rarely early on in 1997. Only a couple months after the series began serialization in Weefuki Shonen Sunday in late 1996. And the first volume of Inuyasha was released in paperback on July 6, 1998. So only a year and a half from when Inuyasha debuted in Weekly Shonen Sunday, graphic novels were coming over here. And that doesn't seem like anything major to us today because that's the normal turnaround time for a lot of big manga titles today. But keep in mind... This was rarely done, practically unheard of, in the late 90s for a manga release to have such a quick turnaround. I mean, I cannot think of any other series that, as it was ongoing, had its volume releases come out so closely after the Japanese releases in that time period. Especially considering that most of this is Shonen Jump stuff. They were years behind, and in many cases are still years behind, where the Japanese releases are at when they started publishing those. And Inuyasha was really little more than a year uh, after the Japanese volume release of the first volume of Inuyasha did it come out in the United States. I mean, volume one came out in Japan in May 18th, 1997. Year later, it comes out in the United States. So Inuyasha was a big deal very early on, even before it got an anime, because the anime did not start until October 2000, and didn't come to North America broadcasting on Adult Swim until August 21st, 2002. So Inuyasha has had a large presence in North America since the very beginning. It was very quickly published legally over here after it began serialization in Japan. And it always had a presence in the manga scene. And after the anime blew up, it had an even bigger premise. It was a highly successful on Adult Swim, one of their most popular anime. And they kept it around for 12 years. It's the second longest airing anime on Adult Swim after Cowboy Bebop. And the only reason they're not really airing it now is lack of space. Yeah, the way they operate Tanami is just so different now that they have to let go of some of their licenses in order to keep acquiring new stuff. But even to the very end, Inuyasha was still pulling great ratings on Adult Swim. I mean, it was getting better ratings at 5 in the morning than some shows were getting at 1am. Yeah, I mean, it was pulling in like 700,000 some weeks even. It would do like crazy well. Inuyasha has always been one of the most popular and one of the most successful manga titles in North America since the very beginning, ever since it first came out over here in 1997. And it's continued to be a very popular title in North America, even 20 years later, even years after the series ended in 2008. And the final volume was released over here in January 11, 2011. Uh, The series has continued to still be pretty relevant in our uh, discourse on anime, whether it's in a positive or unfavorable light. And it's had a television premise as recently as last year, June 2015, 
when the final act concluded its run on Janami, ending that 13-year journey the series had on Adult Swim. So, I think that we've kind of gone over beginnings of Inuyasha, the inspiration for Inuyasha, and... A little bit of the history of Inuyasha in North America. I'd say that was a lot of history. To be honest, I wish I had structured this portion of the podcast a little bit better. I did a lot of research. I'm going to link to a bunch of interviews in the show notes. Well, I'm going to link you to Farinkan, which is where you can find a bunch of interviews with Rumiko Takahashi on the series. And I did a lot of research. I went back and really research how Takashi approached writing the series, why she wanted to write the series, to kind of get an understanding of why Inuyasha is the way it is, how it turned out the way it is, and then kind of think about fan reaction to Inuyasha. But before we move further, before we answer some Q&As and before we go into our favorite moments, I want to briefly get in touch with me and Re Lord's history with the series on a personal level. And I was introduced to Inuyasha when I was young. You know, I saw it, I saw it on uh, Adult Swim. I saw a few episodes. I vividly remember the Inuyasha Kagome, Inuyasha Kagome promo they aired. It's, <laughs> it's a great promo. Love it. Uh, but that, that promo also encaptured what I felt about the series when I was younger. I felt it was just a bunch of annoying relationship between Inuyasha Kagome where they just yell each other's names a lot this melodrama and I wasn't into action series back then so that element didn't appeal to me at all I wasn't into romance back then so that element didn't appeal to me at all so Inuyasha was a series that I did not care about or care for and I didn't pay it any mind or didn't have any thoughts of getting into it even after I got into animes through Dragon Ball I didn't really think about getting into Inuyasha because I didn't really think much of it until I got into Rama one half uh, after discovering it on Toonami Aftermath in 2011 and really getting into it in 2012 and around that time around May 2012 that's when Toonami came back and around that time was also when I realized that Inuyasha was from the creator of Ramen One Half. And about the time I wanted to finally start and try and check out Inuyasha, that's when they took it off Adult Swim when Toonami came back. And I was like, oh man, I missed my chance to watch the anime, I guess. I guess I'll go read the manga. So that's what I did. I went to my local library. I uh, picked up the first giant omnibus volume of the series, and I started reading. And I continued to do so over a period for six months. And I thoroughly enjoyed my time with the series, I thoroughly enjoyed reading in the series, and detached from discourse and the fandom on the internet, and the opinions on the internet, and just reading that Inuyasha strew on my own, unsullied, with no other person's opinions besides my own, I really came to understand the series on my own terms and also understand it in terms of what I felt was Rumiko Takashi's writing style and her intentions with the series. And that is going to basically inform you on my perspective on Inuyasha and where I'm coming from when I talk about Inuyasha. And what about you, Wee Lord? How did you get into Inuyasha, and what has your, been your experience with it as a fan? Well, my experience with Inuyasha is pretty similar to yours. I remember seeing an adult swim all the time. I remember even the old robot chicken sketch, where it's like this dad seeing his daughter watching Inuyasha, and 
then pretending to watch Inuyasha like he did so that he could go watch his football game. That is an amazing robot yeah. chicken sketch. So I definitely was aware of Inuyasha as a kid, but I don't know, it always like came off of something like, oh, this, is, this seems like too girly or something. Oh, I, the, the, I'm not going to like this show. So I just never bothered to watch it. And then years later, you started getting into Ranma and a lot of Rumiko Takahashi's other stuff. So I started getting intrigued by the idea of kind of watching Inuyasha. So when, like, Tanami, when they came back and then put Inuyasha at, like, 5 a.m., I started watching it, and, like, I enjoyed it, but I started, like, experiencing the problem where, like, my big problem with the Inuyasha anime is the pacing, and overall, just, like, I just wasn't getting into the anime, so eventually I just kind of dropped it. Then, I think it was last year, I saw, like, a bunch of Inuyasha volumes at my local library. I decided to just pick them all up, and just go spend a month and just read the entire manga. And boy, was that an experience. <laughs> the one thing I learned about Inuyasha while reading it is that despite it being like 56 volumes, it is a very quick yes, read. Yes, it is a very quick read, very breezy. Yeah. It reads really fast. And I can understand some of the complaints about the pacing when following it on a week-to-week basic, but it flows really well in volume format. And I think that really helps the experience both of us had reading it, you know, for the first time was that it was completely complete. We didn't have to read it on a week-to-week basis. Uh, We could just read the entire story at our pace and absorb it just kind of naturally. Yeah, so I ended up reading like one or two volumes every day for like a whole month. And I just ended up getting through the entire manga. And... If I had been reading it week to week, I I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much, to be honest. Simply because, like, a lot of things just, like... It takes a long time for a fight to finish in the manga. Like, fights will go on for, like, an entire volume. Just because Takashi focuses so much on the art. And there's so many, like, two-page spreads. And a lot of times there's just very little dialogue per chapter. It's interesting that Takashi spends so much time on the art in Inuyasha. That's something that she's noted before an interview is on the series that she pays a lot more attention to the art than she did in previous works. It's interesting because she's always fancied herself a writer, but with Inuyasha, I definitely think that we see her trying to explore and expand her artistic sensibilities and try and do stuff that she's never done in her previous works. And I think a lot of the time she creates some fantastic imagery, but maybe sometimes she went a little too overboard. And so we get some fights, like uh, the Kagomuru-Jeromuru fight, or the fight with Toshu and Daki, which go on for a long while, and they are basically served to be kind of a long artistic experiment by Takashi and how she can draw action scenes. And they're really interesting to read from that perspective. But when following it from week to week, uh, it can get a little tiresome, I would think. Especially when fights like those really aren't the most consequential to the overall narrative. Yeah, definitely. And, like, uh, just comparing it to, say, like, a previous or whatever series, like My Son of Koku, where My Son of Koku has a lot of, like, dialogue per chapter. Like, one chapter could be, like, an entire episode of the anime, which I think in most cases it was. Yeah. (laughs) Inuyasha, though, most of the stuff in the Inuyasha manga just can just easily be condensed because, like, so much of it is just action. 
And I guess it kind of reminds me of Bleach in a way, except less lazy because Kubo kind of just went slow and very little art near the end simply for the sake of dragging it out. Yeah, that's one thing you can't criticize Inuyasha for. Takashi was still putting in as much effort, if not more effort, towards the end than she was at the beginning. So there may be something to be said about her artistic style, how it softened towards the end of Inuyasha's run, maybe preferring the more rougher, more raw style of early Inuyasha to the more softer, more gentler uh, look it had towards the end. Yeah, Inuyasha has kind of the bleach pacing. Like, it's very slow week to week. But in Takahashi's case, I think it's mainly because of her inexperience with Battle Shonen in general. She, like, by the end, it's like, I felt that it was less of a problem, really. Like, more was happening per chapter as, like, the series, like, near, near, like, it's, like, final, like, ten or so volumes. But especially, like, in those, like, in the first half especially, like, the progression per volume is, like, very, very slow. I think every Inuyasha fan can agree that pacing was the series' biggest problem. But I think that's a good segue into, actually, the Q&A questions that we got from the R Inuyasha board on Reddit. And I want to thank uh, the two people who gave us questions uh, on Reddit. We basically are doing this podcast because of your questions and because I found your questions interesting. And it stimulated my desire to have more Inuyasha discussion after already recording our manga fight with Josh Dunham. Which, by the way, will be out tomorrow. So... Let's get into the, some of these Q&A questions. And first, we've got some questions from Byzantine Byzantinos. And he asks, Did Rumiko Takahashi's style of writing episodic self-contained stories and arcs translate well to Inuyasha's more action-oriented story? In Rama One Half or Yursi Yatsura, it's easier to dismiss her one-off filler stories because they're comedy. As long as it's funny, we don't mind. Yet, Inuyasha seems to come under fire for doing the exact same thing. But instead, it's called repetitive and long. Are these criticisms valid? Or is Rumiko Takahashi just doing what she's always done? And definitely the answer to that is, she's just doing what she's always done. And she approached writing the story the same way she approached Ron One Half. She had no clear end goal in mind with the story when she began it. And she didn't, like, right up to the very end, and really, well... I think towards the end, maybe the last two or so years, she kind of figured out an end game. But even in the final year, she didn't have the ending perfectly decided. She was still figuring out what she really wanted to do, what note she wanted to close the series off on. Rumiko Takashi is very much this free-spirited writer, this very spur-of-the-moment kind of writer who writes whatever comes to her mind a particular week and goes with it. And that's the approach she took with Inuyasha. It's the same approach she took with Rama and Yurusei. Now, it is different in the case of Inuyasha in the sense that while with Rama and Yurusei, those were comedies and those didn't make any bones of having a story that 
was working towards an ending. Inuyasha, from the onset, took the appearance of a serialized narrative, one that had an end goal, at least had a goal for the characters to accomplish. And that goal was completing the Shikon Jewel and defeating Naraku. And the longer that goal was stretched out, the longer it took for the characters to complete the jewel and the even longer time it took them to finally defeat Naraku. That definitely, I felt, definitely rubbed people the wrong way. I think that's where the irritation with Inuyasha and the length of the story and the idea that it was stretched out comes from is because it had that premise, that premise and that goal of collecting the jewel shards, completing the jewel, defeating Naraku, and that was the one goal that it had for the entire 56 volume run and it took that entire 56 volume run to accomplish that goal it took 12 years to accomplish that one goal and that goal isn't treated as a joke as say Rama's desire to cure his curse and never transform into a girl again is in Rama one half like completing the Shikon jewel and beating Naraku is treated seriously in Inuyasha and so the longer that dragged out and more complicated that plot became, the more frustrated fans became and the more fatigued fans became. So that style of writing definitely was not the best fit for a series, a long-form narrative like Inuyasha. It works better with Takashi's sitcom comedies, but Inuyasha, with the type of story she was telling, it wasn't the best fit. Perhaps it would have been better for her to have multiple goals throughout the series, have the Shikon Jewel be completed earlier on, have Naraku maybe, instead of being the end goal, be maybe a first boss, and then maybe having other villains and strew the story. There may have been other ways she could have written the story, and I definitely see where a lot of the complaints about Inuyasha's link come from in that respect. Yeah, I mean... Like, I, I can definitely see people being fl- frustrated about that, because Naraku, from early on, we we know that he's the final goal of the series. But even then, there's still, like, a lot of episodic stories in Inuyasha, even near the end. Like, I think even within the last, like, hundred or so chapters, there are still, like, episodic, like, Monster of the Week type stories. Yeah. That, like, I mean... Inuyasha... And the game the, go on. Are the three chapters where Shippo does his uh, Demon Fox exam thing happens in like volume fifty. It's like six volumes before the end. Yeah, and everyone loves Shippo, right? Right, everyone loves Shippo. <laughs> yeah, it's totally not hard to tell how he shows up like every chapter. Yeah, you don't have to play a Where's Waldo game trying to figure out where Shippo is. Uh. <laughs> but yes, uh, Takashi's style of writing episodic self-contained stories didn't quite fit Inuyasha as well as it did her comedies. But then his second question is, he's interested in whether or not we think Inuyasha left any impressionable legacy on the industry at large. Yurisa Yatsura is cited as being the inspiration for titles like Tula Ru and Oh My Goddess. And Raman One Half laid down many of the common harem and rom-com tropes that still loiter today. And so what is the primacy legacy of Inuyasha? And 
I definitely don't know if Inuyasha had quite as significant genre influence as Yuri Yatsura or Roman one half. The influence of Yuri Yatsura was so massive, it extends just beyond like specific influencing specific titles. It basically defined the modern anime comedy and also defined the modern anime production. And Roman one half definitely that has become the template to which all modern rom-coms build off towards. Inuyasha, I don't think, has really inspired any other works in the shonen action genre or the shonen fantasy genre in the same way something like Dragon Ball, One Piece, or Naruto has. If anything, the legacy of Inuyasha has been its uh, effect internationally, its success internationally. And uh, in North America in particular, it was a very important building block, a very important title for Viz Media. One of their earliest manga successes and one of their biggest manga, uh, biggest anime successes before they acquired Naruto in 2005. Inuyasha, alongside Takashi's other works, helped build Viz Media up. And its success on North America also contributed to the success of anime on Adult Swim for a good number of years. I think that without Inuyasha, I don't think Adult Swim would have expanded to airing anime weekly uh, on weeknights or uh, even keeping anime around for as long as they did. So Inuyasha was definitely a very significant title for North American anime fandom, if nothing else. Yeah, I'd say Inuyasha's main impact has been within the international market mainly. Inuyasha, like... As a series, like, it gained a lot of attention in Adult Swim. It got a lot of people into anime. It also gained a lot of, like, female fans as well. Like, I'd say among, like, anime that have, like, large female audiences, Inuyasha is definitely one of the top ones. Almost definitely. I think it's fair to say there might be more female fans of Inuyasha than there are male, actually. And that it speaks to Takahashi's kind of gender appeal. Like, she has... Her series have always appealed to both male and female audiences. And I think they do so equally in most of her series. But definitely with the North American fandom, I think we definitely see more of a lean towards the female fans with Inuyasha. And I definitely think that can be attributed to the more focus that Takashi put on her male characters and that conscious focus she put on her male characters and trying to tell a story from their perspective with Inuyasha as opposed to focusing more on her female characters in her previous works. Though, at the same time, Inuyasha is more Kagome's story than it is Inuyasha's, really. And the story is told from her perspective. But definitely, with Inuyasha, with Sashomaru, and with all the male characters in Inuyasha, Takashi places more emphasis on their stories and gives them a kind of be shown an appeal that appeals to female readers. And I definitely think that uh, has contributed to a large female following internationally, really. I mean, I'd apply that to, like, all her series, really. Because all her major series have all been in, like, shonen or seinen magazines in my son Goku's case. But... Even, like, in, like, Ranma and Masanakoku, where main characters are having, like, the main focus and stuff, her female characters still have a lot of presence. And I think that's what draws a lot of, like, female audiences to her work overall. Beyond just, like, regular romance elements that she also puts in her series. Because she, she is very good at, I feel, balancing 
a good cast of female characters and a good cast of male characters. Oh, definitely. Kind of blending them all together. She can write both genders very well, but her female characters are some of the most interesting that you'll really see in any comedy manga or any manga in general. And I think that's one of the things that people are really drawn to her works for, that she draws these really interesting, really diversely characterized female characters in all her works. Now, our final Reddit question, a bit unrelated to our previous topics. Koga, hero or jerk? (laughs) (laughs) How am I not surprised that this is a question? Yes. So, what is your opinion? We get this question from Pobody, and uh, he notes that, on one hand, Koga is introduced in the series as the leader of a pack of wolves who killed an entire village. He makes no apologies or reparations for this. He avoids his marital commitments to Ayame, instead pursuing Kagome to the fury of Inuyasha. He antagonizes Inuyasha for no reason, makes Kagome feel sorry for him. And when the chips are down and the final battle is ensuing, he boils out because he has his jewel shard stolen. But on the other hand, you can see him as a very dedicated leader of his pack, pursuing the strengths of his ancestors and very protective of Kagome. Eventually, he matures and realizes his place with Ayame. So, yeah. here's both perspectives there. I'll note that all that stuff with Ayame is anime only. Ayame isn't in the manga. Uh, she's, she's an anime original character, but I do like in the how in the final act like, we do see him uh, get married to Ayame. I, I appreciate we see what happens to Koga. Yeah, because like, in manga, he just kind of disappears. Like, yeah. after Naraku absorbs Moriomaru in that fight, he just kind of gives up and just doesn't show up ever again. Yeah. So I, I like how they at least showed us in the yeah, end. At least he's alive and he's doing fine. Yeah. He did, like, die in a ditch on the way home. Yeah. At least we know where he's at at the end of the story as opposed to in the manga where Takashi doesn't really draw any epilogue for him. But uh, as far as Koga being hero jerk, I definitely have always had a problem with Koga being coming in alley just in the sense that he did slaughter a village of people, and he isn't remorseful of that whatsoever. Yeah, and his wolves killed Rin. (laughs) Yeah, that too. But he does become a better person throughout the course of the series. He does disavow killing humans after he falls in love with Kagome. He does prove himself to be a noble leader. He does prove himself to be loyal to his pack and clan. He's not willing to sacrifice him for the sake of power, as we saw when he pursued the Goraishi. And I definitely think that Koga is kind of an obnoxious character for the longest time, because most of his interactions with Inuyasha are just them bickering over Kagome. And I do think, though, come the Banner 7 arc, when we see Koga act on his own a bit more, and we see him go up against enemies on his own a bit more, and we get to follow him more, like, individually, rather than him just interacting with Inuyasha's group, I think that he becomes much more interesting. And he gets a lot of really cool moments in the Band of Seven arc and beyond. Like, he takes out pretty much half the Band of Seven when you think about it. Oh, yeah. So, Koga, hero or jerk, he's both a hero and a jerk. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, my my perspective on Koga, I guess, I kind of would think of him com- like compared to Vegeta, I guess. Like, Vegeta, he, he killed a lot of people when he was first introduced, but he kind of redeems himself over time. I mean, Koga! Koga's a less developed character than Vegeta, in my opinion. 
But, like, I mean, I, I will definitely ag- admit that early on, I, I had problems with Koga simply because he kind of killed Rin initially <laughs> and her village. And we, we never really addressed that ever again. Yeah. But, I mean, granted, I don't think he actually knew that he killed Rin, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but anyways, over time as we got to, like, know Koga more, and he actually interacted with Kagome and Inuyasha, you start to see that he's not, not that bad of a person. He actually does, like you said, he starts caring about humanity a lot more as he kind of, like, is with Kagome. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I, I kind of would say, yeah, he's kind of in between hero and villain. Like, more so because, like, yeah, he's done bad things, but he still ends up Helping fight against the greater evil in the end. Even though he kind of just leaves the fight once he loses yeah. the Shikan Jewels. But that does it for our Reddit questions. Thank you, Byzantine Valentinos and Pobody for sending those in. And I hope we get some more questions uh, next time we do a special retrospective kind of thing like this. But now we're going to move on to our main event. And that's... Discussing our top 10 favorite Inuyasha moments. And in a 56-volume series, there are a lot of moments to choose from. But I have a feeling that Varun and I uh, share about half of them. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the thing in Inuyasha is that even though it's so long, a lot of the best moments are kind of in the second half. Yeah. I think, as we'll see here, a lot of the best moments in the series we chose are from the last 20 or so volumes, and specifically from the final act portion of the series, as I like to call it. I mean, it was adapted in the final act, yeah. so... Uh, I'll, I'll note down with mine the specific chapter and specific episode of the anime where you can find this moment. I don't know if... You actually know that off the top of your head. Jesus, you really are Lomran Mayasha for a reason. Yes. <laughs> As you'll see in, in the manga fight with Josh Dunham tomorrow. <laughs> they don't call me a Takahashi Tar for nothing. Oh, God. <laughs> but I think I want to let you begin first, Warren. What? Let's begin with your number 10 moment. Uh, we'll count down from 10 to 1 here, and we'll switch off between us. And if we share a moment, we'll just make sure to note of that. Yeah, so uh, this is kind of in like a more general 10 to 1 order. Like, I think near the end, it kind of all blends together in how I feel about these moments. But uh, number 10 for me was... All the times that Iriyasha, like, goes to Kagome's, like, present-day time. Oh. And just interacts with the, like, world itself. Yeah, that those are all very fun whenever Iriyasha goes yeah. to the modern day. And he interacts with Kagome's family. And friends who think, like, he's some cosplayer or something. Yeah. And you gotta love his elder brother relationship to Shoda, Kagome's brother. Yeah. And then there's just all those little moments, like, Iriyasha, like... Jumping over to, like, Kagome's school to give her, like, her test ticket when she gets it on the train. All that stuff. It's just, like, a lot of nice moments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I definitely think among those, the most memorable to me is like when they almost kiss and like the last time Inuyasha visits Kagome, you know, there's this definite like romantic tension between them. And they so they start to lean in for a kiss, but then Kagome's parents come home and it's like, hey, what you guys doing? And so, you know, they stop and, you know, they're all blushing and stuff and they're like, hey, what, what, what's wrong with you guys? It's like, that was a great moment. So, I'm going to talk about my number 10 moment here. And, well, let me preface my list by saying I have a lot of similar kinds of moments on here. I have a lot of Sashomru moments, and I have a lot of character deaths. So, I tried to I mean, space these out. Everyone kind of. loves those. Those are so happy. <laughs> yes. I love when characters <laughs> die. Yeah. Yeah, the- Especially in Inuyasha. Oh, yeah. Oh, those character deaths are so happy. Yeah, so I, I tried to space these out to make sure I don't have the same kind of moments back to back. So at number 10, we do have a Sashomaru moment, though. And this is when Sashomaru breaks his Tokijin in anger on Moryomaru in chapter 406, Anger. Also in episode 2 of the final act, Kagura's win. And the context of the scene is just brilliant. Because this is the first time we see Seshuru get angry for someone other than himself. And that cloud his judgment. And this pertains to when Moriomaru is making fun of Kagura's debt and calling her a foolish woman and he's pissing everyone off in the manga like Inuyasha's like how dare you but Sashomaru doesn't like say anything we just see his eyes like grit we just see him like fuming internally and we just see him like brush Inuyasha aside and he charges Moriomaru and he just slams the tokajin in him and shocking him with electricity and he just keeps pushing and pushing against the armor of the turtle demon Meiyoju, which is supposed to be impenetrable, but he just keeps pushing it in. He's breaking Moriyomaru's armor down with the Tokijin's lightning, and he's just completely focused. He's just completely let his anger at what Moriyomaru said consume him. His anger that Moriyomaru insulted Kagura, someone he cares about, consume him. And he just lets that overcloud his judgment to the point where he doesn't notice that the Tokijin is cracking, and just when it seems that Seshomaru has broken through the armor of Moriomaru and exposed the Shikanjul shard, the Tokijin snaps. Seshomaru's primary weapon is broken because he let himself get clouded by anger over in someone insulting someone he cares about. And that's just a powerful moment for Seshomaru's character arc because this is one of the first times we see him act in a way that's not self-centered. It's important to note that because of this moment, that is ultimately why Sashomaru is able to unlock the true powers of the Tenseiga and the Meido, because for the first time in this moment, he has shown empathy and he has shown compassion and that he cares for someone other than himself. Uh, the first time he has shown true selflessness. And I just love this moment because of that. Yeah, all the moments where Sashomaru shows like these like lapses of general like genuine emotion are always just so great. 
Mm-hmm. Like, we first started seeing them, I think, around, like, when he revives Rin for the first time. And, like, I don't know, I, I just love them so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kagura's whole death scene was also on my, uh, top ten here is number six. Yeah, let's... I want you to let us save that for the end, because that... Oh, is that also on your list? Yeah. <laughs> it's also on my oh. list. It's, uh... It's my favorite moment. I'll just spoil that oh, right away. Okay. It's my favorite moment. So we're going to save that for the end. But uh, why don't you go on to your number nine moment, Lord? Yeah, so my number nine moment is uh, the final fight with Kana. Kana was always kind of like this silent character and in, in, incarnation of uh, Miyamaru. But in that fight, you start, you start to kind of like see inside her head a little bit like, how she feels about Naraku and, like, the whole situation between Inuyasha's group and him. I always love that, like, those final words that, like, she says to Kagome, like, the light will destroy Naraku. I always thought that was, like, a great moment. Mm-hmm. I also like in the final act how they kind of give Kana, like, a little monologue at the end of, I think, some of the early episodes. Yes. I will talk more about this again, because this... It's also on my list uh, down the line here, but this is, it's also... Man, you weren't kidding about us <laughs> Yeah, but it's also a fantastic moment. But moving on to my number nine, the end of Hakudoshi from chapters 370, titled The End of Hakudoshi, also featured in the first episode of The Final Act. And the end of Hakudoshi is just such a great villain that because Hakudoshi is just this precocious this pretentious little asshole of a child who thinks he can get away with anything because he thinks he's invincible he thinks that nothing can destroy him because he has pretty much an immortal body his life is tied with the infant so unless the infant himself dies uh, he cannot die Pretty much. So, Ihakadoshi, like, is lording over Inuyasha's group and Kagura and, and trying to, you know, kill Kagura for betraying him and Moriyomaru. But Inuyasha and Kagura managed to team up and turn the tables on him. And so, they blow up his body. So now he's just a floating head. But of course he can regenerate, you know, give him some time or whatever. But Moroku decides to use his opportunity to try and suck him into the wind tunnel. Now... This is great because historically in the series, the wind tunnel is pretty useless because Naraku has the Sanyosho, these bee-like demons that when sucked into the wind tunnel, poison Moroku and slowly kill him. So Moroku can't really use the wind tunnel in too many situations. And so he tries to use it here against Hakadoshi though. And Hakadoshi is like... Whatever, I'll just have these Samyosho come and stop me from using it. So he tries to summon the Samyosho, but then the Samyosho don't come and they move away from him. And he's like, what? Why is this happening? Oh shit. And we see Naraku, like, smirking to himself, watching, like, Hakudoshi through his crystal ball thing. He's like, oh, you stupid, <laughs> foolish Hakudoshi. 
I'm the one who gave you the fucking slime roach, you, you idiot. The only reason that they, <laughs> the only reason that they're around you is because I willed them to do so. Now I don't need you, so you can go fuck off and die. That's just fucking amazing. Because wow. in that moment, Hakuto is like, "Oh shit, I am fucked." And then he gets sucked into the wind tunnel, and he's screaming all the while, saying, "No, this can't be happening. Why me? I, I can't fucking die in this pathetic way." He dies in the most awesomely pathetic way ever. He's just screaming into the wind tunnel. He tries to attack Kagura one more. time time doesn't work and he just gets caught up by the wind and he's just getting flown into the wind tunnel and as he gets sucking he's saying no this can't happen to me I'm an I am transcendent and then he just gets sucked into the wind tunnel and then Moroku closes it and he's gone Hakushoshi is gone he's fucking dead and it's fucking awesome because this is the one and only time the wind tunnel is Ever successful against uh, an, a, a main antagonist in Inuyasha. It's the only time it ever gets to kill off one of the main antagonists in Inuyasha. It's so satisfying that Hakudoshi is the one who gets to get sucked into Wind Tunnel, which is probably the lamest way any of the villains in Inuyasha get killed. And it's just so perfect for this pretentious, precocious brat of a character. And I absolutely love, love the moment for it. I don't know if it's necessarily the lamest. I guess Lama's death, yeah. But Lama's defeat-wise, like, there's the one, like, lady who gets, like, her own, like, uh, spell, like, shot back in her eye. Yeah, Subaki, but, uh... Yeah, Subaki. But... It's perfect for Hakadoshi because he thinks so highly of himself. He's so smug and so, like, thinks he's so above everyone else. And he thinks he's so invincible and can't be, like, defeated. So he doesn't yeah. think anything of Inyasha or Kagura or Moroku. And he's like, whatever. But in this moment, he realizes, oh shit, I'm vulnerable. I can be destroyed. And I'm going to get destroyed by this wind tunnel. And there's no escape crap no why is this happening to me i shouldn't be happening to me i'm better than this but he's not and this what make it just so perfect and amazing and i absolutely love this moment mm, yeah that's certainly a great moment speaking of inuyasha screwing over his incarnations <laughs> <laughs> um my number eight moment is the fight with uh, between Naraku and Moriomaru, and then the, I guess the ensuing fight afterwards with Inuyasha and Koga and the gang against Naraku after Naraku screws over Moriomaru. So pretty much Moriomaru tries to absorb Naraku along with like the infant who's already inside him, and then while Moriomaru's fighting Koga and Inuyasha and the gang, Naraku decides to just take over the body thanks to one of the powers that he acquired by absorbing demons and goddamn, he just rips through everything and Moriomaru just takes his shield <laughs> this is actually also my number 8 moment uh, the end of Moriomaru and I absolutely love this moment this is probably the coolest thing Naraku ever does in the series, to me. This is my favorite, like, Naraku moment, I would say. Because Naraku has basically planned this long, really long game with, with the infant and Moriomaru. Like, 
The infinite Moriomaru all this time has been building up Moriomaru to be this invincible shield that would defeat Naraku. So the infant finally succeeds in a battle with Naraku in absorbing Naraku into Moriomaru. And he thinks that now he's the genuine article. Like he has become, <laughs> he has replaced Naraku and now he He's will... the alpha Naraku. Yes, now he is the true Naraku. But Naraku has been premeditating this from the very beginning. Ever since he split the infant from his body, he knew that the infant would try and betray him because of his experience with splitting off Onigumo from his body before. So, if he made his heart into the body of an infant, it would become self-conscious and seek out a shell to protect itself and then try to absorb Naraku later on. And so he manipulated the infant into doing what he wanted, into creating Moriomaru, gathering up all these powers, combining it into himself, and then getting Moriomaru to absorb Naraku, so Naraku from the inside out can absorb Moriomaru and reabsorb the infant inside himself and maybe rebuild himself into a newer, stronger, invincible Naraku. And you gotta love when the infant realizes, wait a minute, something's up, why hasn't the jewel shards I got it for Naraku been absorbed yet. Where you just why see has... Naraku's head and... peeking at this. Yes, you see Naraku's head peeking at the infant and then you see Naraku's tendrils like slowly creeping up from the infant. You see the infant like shuddering in fear as the tendrils close in on him and start to absorb him and Naraku's like gloating all the meanwhile and he's like, you didn't really think that you could defeat me, would you? You should know your place, kid. And it's like, you see Moromo Moromaru's face crack and his body shatters and from it is Naraku emerges looking all badass and bishy as fuck with like this <laughs> new design form and in the side of his arm we see the infant like looking pretty much dead and like soulless being slowly absorbed back into Naraku like with these tendrils and like this diamond's like encrusted shell on top of him. It is both awesome and disturbing at the same time. Again, it's just a satisfying like character defeat for a villain who thought he was just so high and above everyone and really thought that, you know, he had gotten the better of everyone else. And it's also just a great moment from Naraku. Like one of the best like moments like he's like you know what i knew you were gonna betray me so i let you do what you want because you were just gonna make me stronger anyway so thanks and you can go fuck off and die now and it's just another awesome moment another awesome character that he's by far the best naraku moment in the series uh, absolutely love it. Yeah, I mean, you'd think, you'd think when all these incarnations are made, it's pretty clear that they aren't all loyal to Naraku. None of them and are loyal first, to Naraku, like, actually. Yeah. The only one who I mean, is, Byakuya, Byakuya. He's the only one, but everyone else betrays yeah. him. Everyone else. Yeah, true. I mean, aside from the ones that, like, don't survive long enough to actually have individuality. Well, no, really, all of them betray him at some point. Either that or they don't follow his orders to begin with, like Oshinki. Yeah, that's true. But anyways, like, you think that this, like, making incarnations would just be this awful, awful, awful idea for Naraku as a villain. But no, he's, like, self-aware that all these guys are just gonna betray him at some point. He's already, like, thinking of ways just to, like, 
kill him and absorb him back into his body once they become stronger. Yeah, you gotta love that self-awareness. Like, he knew that they were gonna betray him, so he came up with this plan with the idea that they would betray him in mind. And I just absolutely love that fact. It's just... So yeah, I mean, it's a it's a good way to become stronger, make your <laughs> make enemies for yourself, and then reabsorb them when they're strong enough to fight you. Plan your enemies' moves before you even think them. Make your enemies yourself. This is how Joe should have trained. We should have known Joe. <laughs> just pick fights with random thugs on the street. They trade up, and then he just beats them in a boxing ring. <laughs> It's awesome. Like, people complain about Naraka being a mastermind villain. This is how the example of why he's a great example of that. Because it is just so ridiculously, like, convoluted, but it's just so fucking just satisfying. just screws over it's so everything. fucking satisfying at the same time. I absolutely yeah. So, should we move on to your uh, number seven moment, V-Lord? Yeah, my number seven moment was... When Sashomaru visits his mother and then has to go into the uh, underworld to save uh, Rin and Kohaku. And I, I always like this moment. Mainly because we kind of like get to see a lot more of Sashomaru's like, care for Rin. Because when they go into the underworld, Rin kind of loses her soul. And then Sashomaru kind of goes berserk and like starts getting like really depressed because, oh, I... Couldn't save Rin. And then he gets another chance by his mother reviving Rin. And it, it just goes to show how much Sashomu really cared for Rin. At first you could argue like maybe he just like revived Rin initially when she, he found her dead body after like Koga attacked her village. Just on a whim. But over time he's like kind of gained this general kind of love for Rin as maybe like a father figure of sorts. Mm -hmm. Like Sashomaru's like compassion for Rin. Like he represents like his humanity in a sense because he generally grows to care about Rin's well-being. He forms a real connection with her and with the kindness she showed him when you know he was wounded and dying after his battle with Inuyasha during the Windscar exchange. And it took him a long time to recognize that he really did care about this person and he cared about someone other than himself. But he did come to realize that Rin meant something to him as a human being. And she meant something to him as a friend. And she was someone that he wanted to protect. And he criticizes himself and he laments how he should have never brought her along and put her in danger and he regrets this as he believes she's dead and he's just in utter despair at this and then we see in hell this moment where he looks at the other souls all trying to clamor around the Tensaiga trying to be put to rest by them and Seshomru purifies and cleanses their souls and after that's done, he's able to create a new Mado to escape hell. So once again, it's learning this lesson of compassion and learning this respect and value for human life that allows the Shomru to grow, not only as a person, but also grow stronger. And it's just such a great moment. God damn, you remember these moments very vividly. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely know a lot of these moments really well. But... 
Actually, uh, at number seven, I also have another Sashomaru moment, and that is during the final fight Sashomaru and Inuyasha have, where Sashomaru uses a, a shard of Kana's mirror to replicate the Tetsaiga, I mean the Tetsaiga, and fight Inuyasha on equal terms with both Tetsaigas. And it's a moment after the fight really has ended, where both Inuyasha and Sashomaru are trapped in the Mado, and Sashomaru recognizes that Tetsaiga has chosen Inuyasha as the true successor of the Meido, and Inuyasha is also Tetsaiga's true successor. So he leaves it up to Inuyasha, and he tells Inuyasha, it is up to you now. You need to tap into your own power and use the Meido to escape this place. And so he gives Inuyasha this advice. He tells him that you need to do this. It's only you have the power to do this. And he stands back and watches Inuyasha do it. Even as he's being sucked into the darkness, like into the abyss of the Meido, all that time, Seishomaru trusts that Inuyasha will perfect the Meido Zangetsuha and let them escape from the Meido. And this is such a key moment in the relationship between Sashomaru and Inuyasha, because this shows that Inuyasha, uh, that Sashomaru not only respects Inuyasha at this point, but he believes in and trusts him too. Like, he acknowledges Inuyasha at this moment as the true successor of Tetsaiga and the Meido Zengetsuha. And it is in this moment that he finally lets go of his desire to hone his father's power and then is able afterwards to pursue his own inner strength. And it's just a phenomenal moment in his character arc. I absolutely love it. That was definitely another great moment for me. Like All the interactions between Sashomer and Inuyasha are just so great. I feel especially like his overall just like character arc of trying to like not to like rely on like what his father like left behind and like trying to harness his own power i, th- I think we can both agree that Sashomaru has some of the best moments in the series again he's the best character you might as well have just called the series Sashomaru. <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's the real main character of Inuyasha. but uh why don't we go on to your next moment v-lord yeah so mine is also a Sashomaru moment it's the final like one-on-one match between Sashomaru and Inuyasha, where Sashomaru gets a mirror shard from like Akana's mirror so that he kind of gets his own doppelganger, Tetsaiga, and then decides to face off against Inuyasha. Yeah, so basically my previous moment. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) But for you, it's the fight in general and not just specifically the... uh... The, the exchange in the Mado. Yeah, pretty much. It's a really good fight. I think I think it's the best fight in the series, honestly. It has the most oh, yeah. weight and most emotion backing it. I mean, it's we've seen Inuyasha and Sashomu class several times throughout the series. We've seen their character arts uh, and their relationships with their father's power and the claim to the Tsaiga being tested and examined throughout the series and it all culminates here just beautifully. It's a brilliant fight. And then I guess to continue off on that is the consequence of what happens after this fight. In my number six moment is when Seshomaru creates the Bak during his fight with Magasui. Uh, in chapter 518 
Bok Saiga, uh, also episode 17 of the final act, titled Mighty Sui's Evil Will. And this is, of course, the culmination of Sashomaru's character arc. This, the Baksaiga represents him tapping into his own inner power, his own inner strength, and that manifesting and allowing him, once and for all, to surpass his father. It was only after he was able to let go of his claim to his father's legacy and his desire to emulate his father and pursue his own path and become his own person that he was able to truly create a power purely his own and surpass his father's power. And uh, consequently, Sashomaru by the end of the series is the strongest character in the series because of what he had to go through and what he learned in the series and how that ultimately pays off. And I think that it's just a great moment. We see that his arm that was cut off at the beginning of the series regrow with Batsaiga in hand, forged from within his own body, his own inner strength. And we see it take down Magasui, the ultimate evil of the Shikon Jewel. And it's just a fantastic moment. Just pure catharsis, pure satisfaction, payoff for Sashomaru's character arc from be- the beginning of the series up until this moment. Yeah, so this was my second favorite moment <laughs> in the series. But yeah, so this whole like scene is the kind of the culmination of Sashomaru's entire development in the series. Pretty much him finally kind of trying to go after the Tetsaiga, or trying to make the Tenseiga more powerful with the Mado, and trying to harness his own power. The power that he has to create himself. And uh, that, it's just such a great moment, because we finally see Sashomaru, like, kind of taking away all that, like, inner turmoil that he's had for this entire series, and trying to focus, kind of, on himself, and making himself stronger instead of, like, finding weapons to make him stronger, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And as we learn from this moment, when you forget about your conflict with your brother, you get a free arm. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but it is so notable that the Besaiga comes from within Sashomaru himself. And it's not yeah. something external. Because... It's a part of him. The Tetsaiga and Tensaiga are literal heirlooms of their father. Uh, they, they were yeah. created from his fangs. Tokijin was a sword that he acquired from a Kagura that was created by the swordsmith. And the Tokijin was a way for him to compete with Tetsaiga. But it was still in pursuit of competing with Tetsaiga and like trying to live up to the expectations and legacy of his father. Now that Sashomaru has abandoned all of that, he can search within himself for strength and walk his own path as his own person. And that is when the Baksaga is, is manifest. And it's just such a great, great touch. And I absolutely, absolutely love that moment. A very smart, very satisfying payoff to Sashomaru's character arc. Yeah, as we said, Sashomaru, the true main character of Inuyasha. Yeah. But I think uh, from here on, we can move on from uh, Sashomaru focus moments that we've been uh, discussing for the last uh, past couple. I think I've been Sashomaru moments. 
Mine? This isn't the Inuyasha discussion episode. This is the Seshoburu discussion episode. Pretty much. <laughs> but I think that we'll move on to our uh, top five moments. Now, my number five is actually the same as your number one. So I want to save that to towards the end, too. So why don't we move on to your number four? Um. Okay, so my number four is when Inuyasha and the gang, Koga, and Kikyo, they all infiltrate uh, Mount Hakure. Where Raku is slowly shedding the humanity out of his body by making these kind of baby child vessels and just like ripping them out and throwing in this weird like pit. It's a really fucked where it up. It just image. like looks like a pile of dead babies. Yeah, it's pretty fucked up. <laughs> yeah. So Inuyasha fights like Bonkotsu. And then pretty much uh, Sango and Moroku infiltrate kind of the mountain. And they have to fight a bunch of Miasma enemies. As always, Moroku almost gets like killed because he overuses that wind tunnel way too much. <laughs> like, Jesus, man, just take a break. Gotta take a chill pill there. <laughs> yeah, and then of course, finally, Naraku is able to actually hurt Kikyo. Oh yeah, pretty brutally too. He's just like, I don't have my humanity anymore, you could just die now. Like, it's a really shocking moment when it happens, because we are operating on an assumption that Naraku cannot hurt Kikyo because he has that love for him that still resides within Onigumo. But now that Naraku has shed Onigumo, he does not have that inhibiting him anymore, and so he's able to attack and seemingly kill Kikyo. Now, of course, she doesn't end up dying. Like, she falls from a cliff for the, uh, I don't know, I guess it's like the third, fourth time. But, like... Yeah, that happens a lot now that I think about it. Yeah, it it does. (laughs) Kikyo and Cliff. She really loves those cliffs. I I actually think cliffs are Kikyo's mortal enemy, though. (laughs) Because she can't seem to stop falling off them. But, yeah. So, I mean, it's a really shocking moment, and it's like, you gotta love when Inuyasha arrives on the scene. He asks the Shomaru, what happened? Where's Kikyo? Shomaru, like, tells him. And Inuyasha asks, like, you didn't do anything? And so Shomaru says, no, it wasn't anything I can do. It wasn't my responsibility. You have to deal with it. And accept that you weren't there to say for yourself. And that's just such a great, like, exchange, too. And, like, the fallout from this, I think, is really great as well. But definitely, like, the... Battles at Mount Hakure, Naraku's comeback during the end of that arc. That was just all a really great stretch of chapters. I think that yeah. there's a reason why the Band of Seven arc was so well-beloved among readers and viewers in Japan and North America alike. Yeah, just Naraku shedding off all his humanity for the first time. It's just such like disturbing and kind of amazing moment. When you see just what he's trying to do to actually, like, finally reach his goal. And, of course, like, he does eventually, like, take back that humanistic side of him later on for various reasons. But at the time, within the Band of Seven arc, this is just an amazing, amazing, like, kind of period of story. Yeah, and then 
my number four moment, actually, to piggyback after that, is actually when Naraku returns to Mount Hakurei to reabsorb, uh, reabsorb Onigumo into himself after realizing that he needs the humanity of Onigumo after all. It's like a very, very small scene, but it's such an important one for Naraku's character because the humanity in Onigumo is what drives him. And even though it's what gives him a sense of mortality and a sense of humanity, that's, he realizes that's not a weakness. He realizes that Onigumo is an essential part of himself. He can't deny that. It's his drive, and it's kind of like his anger. Without Onigumo, Naraku is driven by nothing. He's just a weird gooblash of demon stew. Yeah, and honestly, this my number four moments are like are actually tied between these this moment and a moment later on after Naraku has completed the Shiko Jewel, and he's just sitting in this cave. And Biaka asks him, "So, what are you going to do without it?" And Naraku is like, "You know, I don't know." I've spent all this time trying to get the Shikon Jewel, just driven by desire. I want to complete the Shikon Jewel. But now that I have it, I realize that the wish I wanted, I can't actually make it become a reality. And I have nothing but this empty hatred inside me. So all I can do now is cause pain and get revenge on those I despise. And so he takes out his anger and frustration on Inuyasha. And it's just, he does it purely out of spite. He has nothing left at this point. Like he has, he can't achieve his wish, his dream, which was to be together with Kiko because he destroyed that with his own hands in his blind pursuit of power. So yeah. now all he has left is to see Inuyasha and friends despair to cause debt and destruction and achieve the Shiko and fulfill the Shiko and Jules will as its puppet. And that goes into the third moment. I guess I'll just tie this with his like Naraku's kind of dying like words where he remarks as he fades away and before the portal to the Shikonjul opens to Sekigomian, that I was never really in control. I was always the Shikonjul's puppet, and I only wish I realized it sooner. In the end, there was never a wish to make on the Shikonjul that I could have made. It wasn't mine to make. And it's just such a sad, like, pitiful end to Naraku, and this commentary on his humanity, on how... In his blind pursuit of power and his blind just hatred of everyone else and like desire to cause others pain, he lost sight of his own happiness and what would actually make him happy and became a puppet for the evil within the Shikon Jewel and let that corrupt him and let that misguide him and make him do things that ultimately cause his own self-destruction. And I really think Naraku is a really underrated villain and underrated character because there's just so much to, about his motivations and his characters that's just really fascinating to think about and to analyze when you consider like what he really wanted in the story and then how that ended up going awry. Like a lot of people kind of give Naraku shit for like seeming like this one-dimensional like super mastermind like villain. But it's really not that way. Like, he had a lot of angles to him over time that we see, like, as you said, once he gets the full Shikon Jewel, he doesn't know what to do. His whole 
desire was to have Kikyo, but kind of killed Kikyo. And at the end, he's kind of just really kind of aimless, because pure destruction, just going off those demonic instincts that he's absorbed from all those coalition of demons. Right, and even though he has that transformation at the end where it seems like he becomes, like, full demonic, like, shed his humanity completely and became, like, full demon, like, in the end, he wasn't even able to do that. Like, Naraku had these two motivations. He wanted to be with Kikyo, and he wanted to become a full demon, as opposed to Inuyasha, who originally wanted to become a full human. But he couldn't do even do that. He couldn't truly become fully demonic because that humanity would, was always a part of him and was always going to linger of him. He could never escape that side of him. And so ultimately that condemned him. He had no wish to make on the Shikon Jewel. Yeah, at the end of the day, he was just a tool for the Shikon Jewel. Right, he was just a puppet of its will. Shikon Jewel was the mastermind the entire time. Well, specifically Magasui. Yeah. Even though he takes on the appearance of all those multiple demons in the jewel, like at the end of the series, like at it, the evil will of the Shikon Jewel is Magasui. So that's Magasui's yeah. true form we see at the end of the series. It's not specifically noted upon, but that's what's how it's supposed to be. So Magasui really was the true villain of the series. And I guess going off all this Naraku stuff, my number three favorite moment was the final fight. Against Naraku. Oh, same here. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. The final fights in manga are always pretty good. Mm-hmm. Unless you're a crappy manga like Bleach. Yeah, the, them being inside, I guess. The giant spider, which was Naraku's super demonic Shikon jewel body. You were on the like edge of your seat, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Like, there are always like, tense moments with pretty much Magatsuchi's like, uh, like, spiritual form and like, uh, Sashomaru and Inuyasha had to fight it. And then they pretty much had to work together to kind of, like, kill it. And then all these little moments where even inside, he's still manipulating them into trying to do these things that'll just, like, completely just ruin them. Like, trying to f- force Sango to kill Rin. He he plays such great mind games on everyone in that in that final battle. It's just really excellent. They're called the traps of light and darkness, and he lures Moroku into killing himself futilely with this, this like false puppet of himself. Uh, tries to get Sango to uh, murder Rin by also like saying you have to get to her to get to me. And so he tries to play on you know their desperation to you know save their uh, partner. And luckily, they aren't able to go through with it and, like, kill themselves or, like, do something they would have regretted. But the mind games Naraku plays in that final battle is just so, so despicable and so, like, awesome. For me, the best part of the final uh, encounter with Naraku, though, is just the image of when they're all together and staring him down. Like, just that... Oh, That's yeah. that page at the end of chapter 549, The Gathering, at the end of episode 24 of the final act. That image is just absolutely awesome with all main characters, like, finally having worked through their ways through the maze in Naraku's body, having overcome their mind games, overcome his attempts to pull them apart, turn them against each other, 
They have all persevered through. They have all come together, and they all staring that Naraku down. And Inuyasha says, "None of us are being left behind. We are all here, and we are all going to fight you together." And it's just such a great moment of solidarity. Just a great moment uh, that really fights against Naraku's attempts to play upon their darkest desires, their deepest fears, and set them against each other. And it's just such. It's just such a great heroic triumph that just sets the right mood for this final exchange between all the characters. And that specifically is, like, one of my favorite moments. I just absolutely love that image of all the main characters staring Naraku down together after working the race through a maze of hardships and Inuyasha's line that they're all going to come out of this alive and together. It's just excellent. Yeah, I know a lot of people complain that no one really dies in that like final like conflict against Naraku. But that was the even point. Yeah, exactly. Like, people <laughs> kind of forget the point. People even complain about like Kohaku surviving again. That was the point, actually, of Kiki's yeah. character arc too. Yeah, like people. I think I think a lot of like complaints about it. I should be honest. Are a lot of people kind of I think forgetting over time. Pretty much a lot of these like moments. Yeah. Inuyasha, simply because, one, the people who followed it week to week, there's so much that happens Mm -hmm. over time that you're not going to remember everything. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people, if they went and reread Inuyasha from beginning to end, they'd be able to respect a lot more. Oh yeah, I I definitely think that a lot of the thematic cohesiveness of character arts and, like, the general, like, motifs and, like, teams of the series are much more uh, understandable and uh, easier to interpret and see how they are developed when you are able to read the series like in a more natural like short burst than if uh, you know you're reading 500 plus chapters week to week over a period of 12 years yeah so you binge readers out there go read Inuyasha yeah we're looking at you Colton yeah but, uh, let's, uh, I guess we'll go down to our final top two moments here. And, uh, my number two moment is, uh, when Inuyasha and Kagome find each other in the Shikon Jewel. And then Kagome making the one true wish. And this is, of course, a great moment that pays off on the relationship and trust that Inuyasha and Kagome have built up throughout the entire series. Again, the Shikon Jewel, like Naraku, is trying to pick... And play on Kagome's doubts, trying to trying to tell her that Inuyasha won't come for her. She will never see her friends or family again unless she wishes to see them again. And that she will be alone forever in the jewel unless she makes a wish. But Kagome stands firm and she trusts that Inuyasha will find her. And Inuyasha doesn't give up and he searches through the Shiko jewel to find her. And they call out to each other. They hear each other, and despite the obstacles, the jewel and Magasubi try to place in their way, they are able to reunite. And and while in the manga they don't do this, in the anime, this is when they finally kiss. And it's just such a satisfying moment. It's such a satisfying payoff of their relationship, of the trust that they have built up throughout the entire series. And then Kagome goes and makes the one correct wish on the Shikon Jewel, and that is Shikon Jewel, I wish you disappear. Which is obvious in retrospect, but you gotta keep in mind, no one thought of doing this because they were all 
thinking of using the wish for pure selfishness, for to achieve their own selfish ends. They were thinking about using it for themselves. Here, Kagome and Inuyasha, they don't care what happens to them. Even if these are their last moments, they are together and they're completely satisfied with that. So they wish for the Shikon Jewel to disappear, not knowing what will happen to them afterwards, because they are perfectly content with that. They make the completely selfless wish because they have everything they wanted in each other, in this moment, in each other's arms. It's just a really romantic and really satisfying moment on Inuyasha and Kagome's relationship and character arts. The power of love. The It's just such a great example of the power of love, really. Yes, all those sit boys, all those misunderstandings getting pissed off at Inuyasha looking at Kikyo. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. It's worth it. All those moments came from a position of mistrust of each other and like jealousies and interferes and feelings of self and feelings of self-doubt. But they've overcome all that throughout the course of this story. They've matured, they've grown up, they've overcome that and they trust and believe in each other. And that's why I think this moment works so well. Without all those sit boys or those misunderstandings, I don't think this moment would have been even nearly as powerful because those are all important. The develop the development and change in Inuyasha and Kagome's dynamic and relationship as they go on and as they learn to respect and trust each other throughout the course of the series, that all builds up, that all progresses and matures and changes over time, and it comes all to a head in this one final moment. And it's, I think it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, so, I already went over my number two moment, because that was earlier on your list. That was Sashel Maru, Awakening, Fox Saga. Mm -hmm. So I'll just go straight to my number one moment, which was Kikyo's death. And as you'd expect from this, this was kind of a very, like, sad moment. Mm-hmm. Because even through, like, the thick and thin, all the conflict between Kikyo and Inuyasha, Kikyo getting kind of psycho at that one point and wanting to kill both her and Inuyasha so that they could have, like, double suicide love in heaven. Lover suicide, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Through all that, at the end of the day, Inuyasha cared about Kikyo. And after everything they've been through against Naraku and stuff... It, Regardless of how you fe felt about like the whole Kikyo versus Kagome relationship with Inuyasha, yeah, you grew to like really like like Kikyo. So it was kind of sad to see her go at the end, and it was also during this moment that kind of Kagome kind of finally like puts to end like her whole conflict with Inuyasha's feelings towards Kikyo, in a way. She finally comes to terms with it. This is a person Inuyasha used to love. Like, she has to accept that about Inuyasha. That's not something Inuyasha can change about himself. Right, Kikyo is always going to be a part of Inuyasha's life. She is a part of him. And Kagobe needs to learn to understand and respect that if she is to love him. And she needs to be okay with that. And it's in this moment, it was before this, actually, that Kagome really came to understand that and really came to terms with that. Like when she was trying to get that special bow, special bow and arrow, 
And she saw that vision of Kikyo that tormented her and like her and like preyed upon her feelings of feelings of jealousy towards Kikyo and Inuyasha's relationship. And she overcame that and she re- recognized that Kikyo is a part of Inuyasha's life. Inuyasha did have a relationship with Kikyo and he still cares about Kikyo, but she needs to be comfortable with that. She can't change that and she needs to understand that if she's going to continue to want to be with him and wants to have a future with him in the future because Kikyo is a part of Inuyasha's past and the only way she can have a future with Inuyasha is if she comes to understand and respect and be comfortable with Inuyasha's Inuyasha's past as part of who he is. Yeah, this kind of this kind of whole like moment reminded me a lot of Imaisan Toku between Soichiro Kyoko and Godai, where Godai kind of has to accept this fact that Suichiro was this big part about of Kyoko's life, and he can't really replace Suichiro. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like that Takahashi kind of brought this type of kind of theme back in Inuyasha, because mm-hmm. that that was an aspect of My Sanokoku that I really loved, and My Sanokoku is one of my favorite manga. Yeah, and. Kiko's death is also just really beautiful in terms of her character arc because, you know, she is from the beginning a very, a tragic character. She is fated to die from the beginning because she is dead. She's already kind of dead. She is dead. She's basically spends her time in the series as kind of a zombie. She doesn't have a flesh and blood body. She's just barely clinging to this like golem vessel that houses her soul by like feeding on the spiritual energy of others. But that bond she's having with her body is slowly fading over time and she knows this. She knows that her time on this earth is limited and she knows that she can't be with Inuyasha. Like, that time has gone. Inuyasha is alive. She is not. And she is fated to die. So she spends her time on earth trying to put an end to Naraku and put to rest that demon from her past so she can pass away without regrets. But in the end, she isn't able to accomplish this. But she is able to finally make amends with Inuyasha and for them to rekindle kind of the bond that they once had and spends her final moments in the arms of the man she loves, shares a passionate kiss, loving kiss with the man she loves, and is able to pass away peacefully into the stars. And it's just such a... Such a beautiful scene. The soul collector's coming to take Kikyo's soul away with them into heaven. And then Inuyasha just stare, standing there on that hill, gazing wistfully into the stars. And everyone just leaving him be, like letting him, letting the moment rest and letting Inuyasha just contemplate and come to terms with keep the fact that Kikyo is gone now. It is really just a powerful moment. Just a absolutely fantastic scene. And then... I guess that brings us to my number one moment. Another really beautiful scene and another really tragic scene and tragic death of a character. And that's Kagura's death. Uh, featured in chapters 374, Wind, and episode 2 of the final act, Kagura's Wind. And this moment involves two of my favorite characters in the series. Sashomaru and Kagura. And it involves Keystone in both of their character arcs. Kagura's entire motivations throughout this story has been her desire to be free, like the wind. She 
resents that Naraku is basically keeps her prisoner by literally holding his, her heart in his hands. And she resents that. She wants to escape. She wants to live life on her own terms. She doesn't want to be just this puppet of Naraku and not have any agency for herself. And she's attracted to Sashonru because he himself is also searching kind of for his own agency in life and kind of also to kind of pursue like his own path and escape from uh, escape from kind of the shadow of someone else. And so she, he, she's, he's, she's drawn to that part of Sashonru and that's how the two sort of become allies. And for Kagura, she falls in love with the kind of person Shishomaru is. And Shishomaru, well, he's not a really person capable of romantic love, but he does grow to care about Kagura as a person and identify and empathize with her desires to be free and desire to escape Naraku. So Kagura also, you know, wants to escape Naraku from this kind of a selfishness. Like, she just wants... To live on her own terms. And she thinks very selfishly. And does rather selfish things. And tries to make alliances. Like with Sushomaru for that end. Like only thinking of herself. But as the story goes on. She generally cares for other people. She generally wants to help Sushomaru. To help Sushomaru. She generally wants to help Kohaku. To help Kohaku. And she basically sacrifices herself to help Kohaku escape uh, the clutches of Moriyomaru. And that is when her betrayal of Moriyomaru and Araku comes to light. And that is when she finally makes her final progression from anti-villain to anti-hero. And afterwards, you know, Inuyasha's group, you know, they recognize Kagura's on their side now. And they say, whatever we do, Kagura, we're going to help you get your heart back. So just stay safe and don't die. And Kagura's like, you know, okay, thanks. But I know that I, I don't, I'm not having any expectations of this. I'll just going to have to pursue my freedom on my own terms. And then Naraku appears before her and he says to her, I'm done with you, Kagura. I'm ready to give you your heart back. And Kagura's like, what? Why? And Naraku says, I have no need for you anymore. So he does what he's promised. He gives Kagura his heart back. But right afterwards, he fucking stabs her right to the heart. With miasma-infected tentacles. And pulls out and leads her to fly away, slowly dying and bleeding from the wound. Naraku really loves screwing over his own incarnations. Yeah. And Kagura finally gets her heart back, only to be dying right afterwards. And so she falls into a flower field, and she can't move anymore, and she's just alone in this flower field. Like, the blood seeping out of her wound, dripping onto these white flowers, coloring them red... And she's like, is this it? Is this the freedom I've wanted? Dying here alone? At the end? But then right before her appears the Shomaru. And Kagura is, is startled for a moment. She's like, did you come here searching for Naraku? Because she, she doesn't think that the Shomaru would really like search out for her. That she he ever saw her as any more of any more than convenient partner 
to help him take down Araku. But Sashirma says, no, I came here because I knew I would find you here. And Kagura, at hearing those words, her eyes just start to water. And she, like she, she realizes just from that exchange that Sashomaru came to comfort her at the end. He recognized what was happening and he wanted to, he wanted to see her off. And Sashomaru does try, like, to use the Tensega, but he realized it wasn't, it wouldn't work. And so they just stay there for a moment as Kagura passes away. And Sashomaru asks her, are you leaving? And Kagura responds, yes, I've had enough. And then she looks up at him, tears in her eyes, and wistfully, as she fades into the wind, remarks, Now that I've seen you one last time. Again, it's such a tragic moment. It's just, it, Kagura finally gets the freedom she's wanted, but she, only, but she only gets that freedom in death. And she only gets the happiness she wanted, the connection with another human being, like, who genuinely cares about her, genuinely loves her. She only gets that recognition from at, in her at the moment of her death. But she dies peacefully. She dies happily. She, she, as Sashomaru says to Inuyasha later, she was smiling because she wasn't alone. She was in the company of the person she loved most, and that was enough for her at the end. And it just, every time I, wa- I reread or rewatch that scene, it just brings tears to my eyes. As we see that one fetter fly away in the wind, as Kagura's voice echoes, I am the wind, the free wind. Yeah, that was my number six moment. And you pretty much explained that so well that I'm not going to even bother with it. Because, yeah, you, you summed up all my thoughts on that, like, absolutely perfectly. Yeah, it's just, Kagura's death scene is, I don't know if it's my all-time favorite, but it's it's one of my, all, it's one of my all-time favorite death scenes in anime and manga, because it is just such a perfect culmination of this emotional character arc, it, and this great payoff to the relationships between these two great characters, and this just fantastic imagery, just this fantastic dialogue, just this really powerful imagery, and just in the anime, just some heart-wrenching voice acting and delivery. It's just absolutely beautiful, and it gets me every time. And to me, this is the one moment out of all the moments in Inuyasha that always sticks with me, that I remember the most that I think about the most and that has lingered with me the most over the years. This scene, this the story, Kagura's character arc, the way it ends, and this complete tragedy of the woman who desperately sought freedom and was only able to find freedom in that. It was it's beautiful. A beautiful moment of writing, possibly some of Rumiko Takashi's best writing in her career. I mean, we've talked about some amazing, amazing moments of writing she's she's had like during this entire top ten, but this might be one of her absolute best. The story of Kagura and the way it ends. Yeah, even though I didn't rank this near the top of my list, I have to admit Kagura is definitely one of the best characters in Inuyasha for sure. Mm-hmm. 
just her overall character arc is amazing. Yeah. I mean, both Josh and I agreed that Kagura is the best female character in Inuyasha, for sure. <laughs> as, you'll, uh, as you'll see. But I think that, yeah, that does it for our top 10 favorite Inuyasha moments. So we went over our top 10 favorite moments in the series, but maybe you're curious of what the creator herself, Rumiko Takahashi's favorite moments in the series were. In a list created in November 2006, 10 years ago, uh, during the 10th anniversary of Inuyasha, in Shonen Sunday's 58th issue of that year, uh, around the time of chapter 482 had been published, so about two years before the end of the series, uh, Rumiko Takahashi, in celebration of the 10th anniversary of Inuyasha, listed her 10 favorite scenes from the series. And I thought it would be cool to uh, run down through these moments and give our thoughts on them. Yeah, let's do it. So, coming in at number 10 here is a scene from the very first chapter of the series uh, when Kagome finds Inuyasha pinned to the Goshinboku. And yeah, that's a really iconic, memorable image. Inuyasha, the arrows to his chest on that tree. Definitely one of the most iconic images in the series. It's just like Ushio and Tara. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wonder if maybe, maybe Takashi was inspired by Ushio and Tora. I, I think she mentions she mentioned once that she was a big fan of Ushio and Tora. Oh, so that explains it then. Yeah. But yeah, so and that, that definitely is a great scene. I can definitely see why Takashi would be so nostalgic for it, uh, being one of the first really memorable scenes in the series she drew in her career, uh, in her career working on the series. And then at number nine, we have... From chapter 75, Kiko's shield, uh, Kagome discovering Kiko slumbering in a tree just before she awakes to attempt to kill Inuyasha. Yeah, you you always love it when your ex-girlfriend decides to try to make you commit suicide with her. Yeah, in front of your current girlfriend, no less. <laughs> yeah! This is another really nice image, Kiko slumbering peacefully in this tree. She looks so... Peaceful, serene here. She looks so innocent. It totally doesn't look like she's a complete psycho at this point. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And I think that contrast is just lovely. <laughs> at number eight, we have from chapter 218, The Scarlet Braid, Inuyasha achieving the Red Tetsaiga. The first upgrade to Tetsaiga, and with it, the ability to shatter barriers. This is really cool, Red Tetsaiga, because it's the first real transformation Tetsaiga has, first real power-up upgrade it has, and it looks really distinct with its, like, tinted coloring, and it feels like a really big deal, because with Red Tetsaiga, we know now that Inuyasha can break down the barrier that's separating him from Naraku's lair, and... Like, it feels like such a big, momentous moment. Yeah, and unlike Flame Tetsaiga, it's used more than once. Right. Unlike <laughs> Flame Tetsaiga, Red Tetsaiga actually is useful right up to the end of the series. Yeah. <laughs> Flame Tetsaiga, man. Oh, God. Yeah. You can see why the final act didn't even bother with giving Yasha that power. I, I kind of still wanted them to. Just for, for the, the fact that they could say, oh, yeah, it's useless now. <laughs> right after its first use. Right. Just like the entire business with Nico said. 
and absorbing it into the Titsaiga. So Inuyasha can use Dragon Scale Titsaiga without getting backlash. But oh no, Nikusen's demonic energy is making him evil. So that's worthless. So now we gotta go and yeah. train with the spirit. So the whole Nikusen aside is pointless. Uh, yeah. I mean, that was part of Duraku's master plan, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. All the detour, plot details of Inuyasha were part of Naraku's master plan. Yeah. <laughs> but, yes, yeah, so at uh, number seven, we have chapter 273, The Bottom of the Corridor, when Ponkotsu uses the shards of the fallen Band of Seven comrades as he prepares for the final battle with Inuyasha. So, I definitely think this was great payoff. Like, the Band of Seven were an interesting group of antagonists because they all definitely had this sense of camaraderie with each other. Well, Rinkotsu was kind of selfish, but Bankotsu yeah. generally cared about his men. And so he, now in this moment, he takes all the shards that his men used and they, he puts them into his sword. And so now he's the entire Band of Seven in one, pretty much. And it's a really cool moment here. And I definitely think that it adds a lot of... I definitely think it speaks a lot to the depth of Benkotsu's character about what this means in terms of... From his perspective. And also it just builds up the trend of this battle with Inuyasha. Because now he's going against a supercharged Benkotsu. So it's, it's a really cool moment here. Yeah, for sure. At number six, we have chapter 292, A Special Girl. Where Moroku tells Sango that he wants to have children with her and spend their lives together. A very emotional scene and a great moment for uh, the Moroku-Sango relationship. And boy, do they keep that promise. <laughs> oh yeah, they they definitely keep that promise. <laughs> yeah, Moroku and Sango. They got yeah. busy. Yeah. <laughs> Three kids and another one on the way. Yeah. <laughs> At number 5, we have chapter 115, The Belonging Place, where Inuyasha tells Kagome the difficulties he faced as a child born to demon and human. And this was a great moment for looking at the vulnerability of Inuyasha as a character, and how he has always been conflicted with this, uh, this, this demon and human side of himself, and how he has been ostracized by both worlds, by both demons and humans alike, because... Of that status. It's a nice moment of characterization from here. As well as a nice moment of introspection for Kagome. As she starts to kind of see a more vulnerable side to Inuyasha. Yeah, definitely. I think this was also like around the same time as that other like chapter. Where they have to help out that half demon, right? Yes, I believe this comes right off the heels of uh, when they were helping Jinenji. Yeah, Jinenji. Yeah, Yeah. so it it was a great moment. Yeah. Uh, at number four, we have chapters 160, Tetsuya Reborn, where Inuyasha transforms from his human form just in time to protect Todosai from a wrathful Sushomaru. Oh yeah, that, that always looked awesome. Yeah, this is this is a nice, of course, comeback in the face of desperation moment, and of course, it's another really good, ex- another really good moment in Inuyasha and Sushomaru battle, and you can't really get wrong with those. Those are full of great moments. Mm-hmm. At number three, we have chapter 374, Wind. Kagura, in her final moments, looking up to find Sushomaru standing with her. And we discussed this moment of plenty. It's my favorite moment. And yeah, it's just such a beautiful scene. Yeah, I think we've already summed up how like great this scene is. At number two, we have chapter 434, 
the Goraichi's power, where Kagoga unveils the power of his ultimate weapon, the Goraichi. I definitely think this is one of Koga's finest moments in the series. Him achieving the Jiraishi due to the selfishness he displays and the loyalty he displays to his clan. And how that earns him the the ability to access the Jiraishi. Yeah, I was actually considering this for my list because th- this was a really nice moment for Koga. Because it finally gave him like a chance to be on a more level playing field with like Inuyasha and like Naraku and his incarnations. And it ends up being a helpful weapon, even though eventually he does still have to leave. But it is a really cool moment, and the Garashi yeah. is a pretty cool weapon. Yeah. And so we come to number one here, chapter 465, Light, where Inuyasha holds Kiko in his arms as she dies from wounds inflicted by Naraku and fades away into the stars. Your favorite moment. Yeah. Takashi shares the same sentiments. That's her favorite moment from the series, too. And yes, it's a it's a beautiful scene. Definitely one of the best in the series. I wholeheartedly agree. Oh yeah, for sure. That's Rumiko Takahashi's top ten favorite moments. Now, keep in mind, this list was made ten years ago, so there might be some more uh, moments from later on after this point in the final two years of Inuyasha that she might have added if she were to have made this list later on, but... Definitely, these are some of the most iconic and some of the most memorable scenes in Inuyasha, I think. And, oh yeah, for uh, sure. Really, really good choices on her part. And I definitely think we can both agree on uh, quite a few of them. And thank you all for listening to this episode of this retrospective of Inuyasha as a series. And us going down memory lane here and counting down and reminiscing on some of our favorite moments in Inuyasha and... The memories we've we associate with it. Yeah, after this, I kind of really want to reread Inuyasha. <laughs> I feel the same way. And thank you for coming on, Relord, and uh, sharing sharing these memories with me. Yeah, I'm, o- I'm always happy to talk about Rumiko Takahashi. And that about does it for the show. Thank you for listening to this special Inuvember Inuyasha retrospective. And Inuvember is a thing. I mean, who knows if we'll do this again next year. But for the series 20th anniversary, definitely I, I wanted to do something special. And uh, do a, a retrospective on a series that means a lot to me and I think has meant a lot to the anime manga fandom internationally, but especially in North America. And Love It or Hate It is definitely a series that has left a legacy, left a mark in our popular culture and the anime manga fandom. And will be something that people will be watching, reading, and discussing for another 20 years more. I think that... Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, And thank you. You can catch our manga fight with Josh Dunham which will be out tomorrow, Sunday, November 13th, the actual 20th anniversary date of Inuyasha's 20-year anniversary. And also check out more of our Manga Mavericks and Manga Fights podcasts on allcomic.com. You can find uh, some of my artwork, if you're interested in me as an artist, on my Tumblr at Sid Gupta's Awesome Art Blog, and you can just check back here on allcomic.com for any of my manga reviews or any more podcasts from Colton and I on Manga Mavericks or Manga Fights whenever we put them out. Yeah, so yeah, you can find me on Twitter, that's where I'm mainly working, at VLORGTZ. Pretty much most places 
where there's a guy named Velor GTZ, it's probably me. Thank you for joining us for this Inuyasha retrospective, and a merry November to you all. Sayonara! Later.